Our scripture today is found first in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then from John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Thanksgiving. It's good to uh, worship with you and be thankful with you for our Savior. Let me uh, take a moment and just adjust the mic. We'll pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we need you. We acknowledge our need of you. We want to know you better through your word and through your spirit, revealing what it means to us. And so be with us now. Uh, bring us higher up and deeper in to your presence through the great work of you, our Savior, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, <clears throat> we've been working on a, a, a month of prayer in November. And as we hit Advent, what we'd like to do is just continue talking about prayer. Although the studies in the home meetings will wrap up sooner than the series will, uh, we thought we'd just continue and think about how God revealing himself in the person of Jesus uh, at Christmas time is relevant to prayer. And so today is a particularly good start for that in what we have. We, uh, with our studies, we are, there's a, usually a companion reader with our studies. And so the companion book that we're reading is a book by uh, Graham Goldsworthy on prayer. And it looks at the way that prayer happens throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, the various stages of Old Testament history, and throughout the New Testament as well, and then finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so there's a, if you're a part of a home meeting, there's a home companion reader study that went goes out with uh, each week, so take a look for that. <clears throat> what we'd like to do today is just look at this. Look at this fact. I mean, we learn in, in Goldworthy's, Goldsworthy's uh, companion reader, we learn the fact that prayer, how prayer unfolds in the Psalms for this week. And what we'd like to look at today is this, that being known by God, being known by God is the real heart of the book of Psalms and the wellspring of prayer. It's the real heart of the book of Psalms and the wellspring of prayer. And so we're going to look at a couple of different things. We're going to look at God's personal knowledge of you, what it isn't, what it is, and why it matters to prayer. God's personal knowledge of you, what it isn't, what it is, and why it matters to prayer. Okay, so first... God's personal knowledge of you, what it isn't. God's knowledge of you isn't a lack of complete or exhaustive knowledge about the future, about your future. It isn't a lack of that. God's knowledge isn't a lack of complete and exhaustive knowledge about the future. Look at verse 4 of the psalm that we're looking at today. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Now, <clears throat> some of you might have uh, 
thought about it this way. You might have thought about it in saying, well, God, you know, I think God might be involved with the present, but I don't think that he knows the future completely or exhaustively. And if so, you might have thought or said that God makes mistakes in saying what will happen. But that's completely contrary to Scripture. And so what we're going to do, I'm just going to, I'm going to go through a couple of examples from the Bible that talk about God's knowledge of the future in a very different way than that, in the way that you might have conceived it. The first thing is that there's, a, there's the idea of prophet in Scripture, declaring what ought to be or what will be in some cases. And the test of a true prophet, and you can write this down and go follow up with it later. I'll give you some passages for each of these ideas. The test of a true, true prophet in Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22 is that his predictions come true. His predictions come true. Now, clearly, the idea is that if a prophet's words prove false, they can't come from God. You find that in the Bible. Because God is never wrong about the future or anything else. Indeed, knowing the future is the test not only of a true prophet, but also of a true God. So we see that in Scripture. But also we see um, another example, Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, 21 through 23. God challenges the false gods to predict the future. God challenges them, for he knows that they cannot do it. Only he knows for sure what's going to happen. And indeed, in Scripture, God often gives specific and detailed prophecies. Or how about this example? Through God's inspiration, the prophet Samuel told Saul that soon after departing, Saul would meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 10, verse 2. And that they would say this and that or do this and that. And all of these events happen precisely as foretold by Samuel. Now, well, okay, you say. So the Bible represents God as knowing the future. But maybe, maybe God, you say, is ignorant in some cases. So, for example, in Genesis 18, 20 through 21, where God says he's going to Sodom to see if it is as sinful as some have charged. But I want to point something out to you. If you believe that God cares about the present and you think that he's ignorant about the future and you're using a verse like Genesis 18 to say that he's ignorant, you're missing the fact that he would also be ignorant of the present then. He'd be ignorant of the present, not the future not just the future. Uh, we have to understand that this and other passages, God speaks figuratively to make a point. In this case, particularly the Genesis 18 with Sodom, God is making the point that he's gathering facts for an indictment prior to rendering a verdict of sin against Sodom. That's different. He's gathering facts. It's a courtroom kind of scene. So, God's personal knowledge of you is not separate from his complete knowledge or exhaustive knowledge about the future or anything else. Now that brings us to our second point. God's personal knowledge of you, we have to know what it is. And what it is is that God knows you completely. He knows everything about you exhaustively, completely, prior, present, and future. Look at all of verses 1 and 6. The, the word knowing is just so prevalent, so prevalent. Verses 1 through 6, from inner thoughts to outer ways, God knows you completely. Let's, take a, let's assess some of them. These are the verses, in these verses, the, just full of verbs of knowing. The general statement of verse 1, then, is applied to life's outward activities and inner thoughts in verse 2. Verse 2 says, you know when I sit down 
And when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know, just as there are levels to belonging in a church community, there are levels of knowing someone individually. You know, we gather here together on Sundays, and we have a sense of belonging to something bigger than ourselves, but that's different than knowing somebody as a neighbor, right? You can worship here together on Sunday, and you don't know whether or not your neighbor is around you is home or not. You know, like you don't have that kind of neighbor knowledge. You can't go and borrow a cup of sugar. As a neighbor, you can know whether or not somebody's home. You can go and borrow an egg or a, whatever it is that you might need. So there's a different level of belonging here on Sunday at church as when we are together in larger groups and we see and value one another, uh, or sort of mid-sized groups. And then when we're in our home meetings, we know and care for one another, and that's a whole other level of belonging, Right? So in a similar way, God knows us in deeper and deeper levels than, than we even ourselves can imagine. So whether we're watching a game with friends or mulling over what happened at work this week, God knows your outward activities and your inward thoughts. So it's okay to invite them there. One of the things that stood out with the Paul Miller prayer seminar so profoundly to me is that when there's something that we feel like we don't understand about how God relates to us or there's a problem that we're facing, we just don't get it, we tend to shy away from it. We tend to shy away from that, the thorniness of that issue. I don't know how God gets me here. or I don't know how the gospel works out in this particular aspect of my life that's so difficult. And Paul Miller, in his prayer seminar, invited us, look, God knows you. He knows you there. He knows your reactions there intimately, more than you know yourself. So invite him in. Have you been trying that? I've been working at it this week where there'll be something overwhelming. And I'll say, there it is, God. There's something that I I feel overwhelmed by. Come into the midst of that. You know me. You supply me with everything that I need for life and godliness through knowledge of you. Be with me in this not knowing about this thing or my lack of wisdom about that. Don't be afraid of the harder subjects. Invite them in. Or also, you know, like, so the general statement of verse 1 applies to life's outward activities and inward thoughts, verse 2, but it also applies to everyday acts of lifestyle. Look at verse 3, ways. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. As I've done pastoral counseling over the years, One of the things that I've seen uh, is that I've listened to, I've gotten a chance to listen to what's important to people. What's important to people and the way that they live their lives as a result of what's important to them. So not just what's important, but the way that they live their lives, all of their ways. And you know what? It's interesting is that as we go along, uh, a, a strange thing happens where people who are, where I'm searching and I'm listening and I'm getting to know what's on their hearts and what's important and how they live their lives as a result, is that they begin to feel like I really know them. Why? Because I am getting to know them. They're letting me in. They're letting me in to that deeper level of where they're really at, how they really think, how, why they really operate the way that they do day in and day out. In the same way, whether it's what's important to you or it's the way that you live your life as a result, God knows your ways. He knows you. That has profound impact on the way that you approach him in prayer and the way that you think about him. Or consider this. Again, the general statement of verse 1 applied to verse 2, verse 3, but verse 4, unexpressed thoughts. Verse 4 says, even before the word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. <clears throat> have you ever gotten to witness a really old couple who have been married a long time and they have a good, solid marriage and they know each other really well? 
Have you ever witnessed them in conversation where one will complete the sentence of the other because they know each other? They know each other so well. They know their thoughts, or so it would seem. There's intimacy there, and duration, and long-standing covenant and relationship. In the same way, even in your unexpressed thoughts, the Lord knows you intimately. He knows them before you'll think them. Or consider, uh, consider this, five, you hem me in before and behind, and you lay your hand upon me. What you should be realizing as you approach God in prayer is that your personal life, all of it, falls wholly within divine limits. Think about it. Think about the language, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me, a picture which reveals that everything that he does in his knowledge of you and his ordering of things for your benefit is for your protection and for your comfort. Think about what Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So no matter how personal a part of your life it is, the Lord is there before you, behind you, beside you, all around you. To not go to him in prayer is disingenuous. He's there. Invite him in. Train your heart to open up to him in that way. Realize that he wants nothing less from you. So God's personal knowledge of you extends to everything about you. But lastly, let's look at God's personal knowledge of you and why it matters to prayer. And the basic fact is that we cannot attain this kind of relationship with God, such intimate knowledge with him, but there is one who has. There is one who has. As we think about how God reveals himself to us in Advent, think about this when you read this psalm or you pray through the psalms. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It's, It's high. I cannot attain it. The way that God knows us in this way, the way there are no limits on the way that he knows us, we can't attain that ourselves. John 17, 3 gives us a clue, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, God, quick lesson, because we've been looking at redemptive history and the way prayer fits into that and the way that um, God's redemptive history unfolding shapes the way that we pray. We're gaining understanding as we go along. And so in the same way, God uses different roles throughout redemptive history to be sure that everyday people like you and like me Everyday people were represented before God. God uses different roles in redemptive history. So, for example, the prophets. What did the prophets do? What's a shorthand way of understanding what the prophets did? The prophets represented the people in receiving the word of God. So they knew God's word. They knew the truth. Or the priests. What's shorthand for understanding what the priest's role was? The priests represented the people, everyday people, in sacrificing to God and in being able to stand in the presence of God in the sanctuary. Or think about the kings. God uses the role of kings to represent the whole of the covenant nation as the sons of God. Prophet, priests, and kings, the different roles that God uses. What's cool about the gospel is that Jesus represents everyday people by fulfilling every one of those offices. And this is not new knowledge. This is old knowledge. This was passed on to children through little training tools. 
little question and answer training tools so the kids or people new to the faith would be able to understand in a very simple way how Christ is the fulfillment of these roles. Here are some uh, questions and answers from a, ch- a child's catechism or one for new pe- people new to the faith. Check out the, the question and answers around prophet, priest, and king. What offices does Christ execute as our redeemer? Answer, Christ as our redeemer executes the offices of prophet, priest, and king, both in his estate and humiliation and exaltation. Well, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Well, how about this? How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy the divine justice and reconciles us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Well, how does Christ execute the office of a king then? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now, sure, you might say, everyday people were represented then through the roles God used to represent them, prophet, priest, and king. And I can see how Jesus is the fulfillment of those, maybe. I can see how he's the fulfillment of those roles. But listen, I want you to consider this. Jesus is not just the fulfillment of those representative roles. He's the fulfillment of the everyday person themselves. He's the fulfillment of you. He's the fulfillment of me. He stands in our place. Jesus is not just the son of Abraham and the son of David. He's also the son of Adam. Luke reminds us that in chapter 3 of his gospel. When we think about the advent and, and God coming to us and breaking in and moving into the neighborhood. Jesus is the true Israel and the faithful Adam. He was the true and faithful human covenant partner of God. He was the faithful human being. And he did that. And he lived that life in your place. And yet he died his death also in your place for not being the representative covenant human being that you need to be or that I need to be. The roles of prophet, priest, and king are clearly not the only Old Testament roles that Jesus fulfills. Jesus also fulfills what the everyday person should but can't. Do you get that? Do you get that about Advent? Do you get about the revelation of God knowing you and knowing your needs and and having a complete exhaustive knowledge of that and therefore choosing to take your place? Do you know that that's what Advent signals? It's nothing less. As Advent begins, here's an important reminder. When you, if you're a Christian, <clears throat> or whether you're considering Christianity, when you come to the Psalms, like 139, it seems like it invites you to identify with the psalmist themselves, right? And just draw a direct line from the psalmist to you. Things like when the psalmist enters the temple, you enter the church building and stuff like that. But here's the thing that I would, I would press you on. You're assuming that any psalm you read... You're assuming that the psalmist God is Jesus' Father, whom you know only through the Son. And Jesus is not an unapproachable deity, but the true God-man whose humanity expresses that which our humanity is being redeemed to become. Jesus in your place. Jesus is your, an everyday person, your representative. That's what Advent's about. And relating to God in prayer through that is where it becomes explosive. 
That's where it begins to open up for you and warm your heart and transform who you are. When you pray, you can pray with the humility to know that you cannot attain peace from God's knowledge of us in and of yourself. But pray with a boldness and a love, knowing that there is one who has attained that peace for you in spite of God's knowledge of you. When you come to God through what Jesus has done, you come with his record placed on you. When God sees you, he sees Jesus' effort on your behalf. So whether you're paying your taxes or being honest at work or being loving to someone close to you or whether you're held up in a room by yourself and doing things that should not be done or with someone privately and doing something with them that shouldn't be done. God knows you, and he invites you into the midst of all of that in Jesus' record so that it can transform you and change your very life from the inside out. Do you believe that? Do you go to God in prayer only when you feel like you've done pretty well religiously? Or are you able to go to God no matter where you're at, whether you drop the ball or whether you feel pretty good about yourself? When you come in the gospel, you come in Jesus' record, not yours. To begin prayer with your record and how you are is the wrong approach, and prayer won't be explosive to you. And you'll miss the entire beauty of Advent, that God has come on your behalf, and nothing can separate you from his love through the work that he's accomplished. Do you believe that? Do you pray out of that? Please do. Please take this time during Advent to consider the mighty works that he's done for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we're not left to ourselves. In fact, we don't stand on anything that we do when we come into your presence and pray. But we stand on the work, the unassailable work, of the mighty one who gave himself up so that we could be drawn close to you, so that we wouldn't be undone by your knowledge of us, but that we would be transformed. Be with us now. Transform us in this Advent season. Draw us, as Andy prayed earlier, closer to you, higher up and deeper in, a more wonderful knowledge of you that shows forth in every aspect of who we are in our lives. Be with us, Lord. We're grateful for your sacrifice and the fact that you moved into the neighborhood on our behalf. It's in your name we pray. Amen.